Good morning. Good morning. There we go. We're ready. All right. Hey, if you are a guest with us, uh, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. There's a lot of things you could have been doing with your morning. And for you to gather with us as we look at God's Word and we kind of prepare ourselves to go live intentionally throughout the week, we just want to say thank you for being here. Um, for everybody here today, whether you're a member or this is your first time or a regular attender, we've got these white cards that are in the seat in front of you. If you wouldn't mind filling one of those out, one per family, uh, I'd really appreciate it. I heard some people uh, in between services say how much they've been appreciating that when you write your prayer requests on that, our elders, we get together on Saturday mornings, we pray over those, um, and it helps us connect to maybe some of the needs in the church and do some follow-up, and, and so we kind of welcome that. If you'll fill the white card out, put a prayer request or an area of the church you'd like to get plugged into, whether it's serving or getting involved in an area, uh, we would love for you to fill that out. At the end of the service, there's a tray that goes around. You can just drop that card in the tray, and that really helps us a lot. And uh, we're humbled and honored that you would uh, pass on that information so we can serve you. So thank you for that. Also, if you're a guest, we are uh, landing the plane, so to speak, on a sermon series that we've been in called The Bigger Picture. And this sermon series um, is kind of this idea that we want to step back as a church to see the bigger picture of what God is calling us to as a church. And so we look at our mission and the values that we want to inform that mission as we seek to accomplish it. And so uh, in the first week of the series, we looked at the mission that God has given us, to be disciples who make disciples. We say that a lot around here, and what we mean by that is we want to follow Jesus and do everything in our power to help other people do the same. We want people to meet Jesus and to follow Jesus, to find purpose in life with Jesus. Some of the core values that we have help inform that and help us live that out. And so we started with the first core value, biblical authority. And that we explain that the goal behind that value is that we as in individually as Christians and corporately as a church would humble ourselves under the authority of the scriptures. And we want the Bible to influence every decision. We want the Bible to influence what we say are our beliefs. We want the Bible to influence our relationships and our business dealings. And in every arena of our life, we want the scriptures to speak to it. And so our number one core value as a church is biblical authority. We moved into our next um, uh, value after that, and we call it excellence. And we explained what we mean by that is because of how good God has been to us in Jesus, that he sent Jesus to live this incredibly perfect life for us, that in response to that, not in order to earn it or that we might somehow deserve it because of this, but in response to that, we want to pursue excellence in every arena of our life. That we want everything we do to be done as well as it can be because we're responding to the greatness and the goodness of our God. And so we pursue excellence as Christians and corporately as a church. And then last week, David walked us through our next value, strategic stewardship. And we want to be strategic in how we steward all that God has given us, whether it's money or it's talent or it's our time. And we want to leverage that for his kingdom. And we want to be wise, not to be selfish and self-centered, not to be foolish and, and only plan for our future, but to leverage all that he's given us for his glory and his kingdom. And so we want to be uh, strategic in our stewardship of everything God has entrusted to us as Christians and corporately as a church. And so, to, so today we're going to move into our last core value, which is transforming relationships. And we're going to look at the impact that relationships have on your life and the impact they can have on your life to leverage your life for his kingdom. We really believe that this is an important value for all followers of Jesus to have, that we surround ourselves with other believers in an effort to transform our lives for his glory 
and our fulfillment. And so transforming relationships is one of our core values. I don't know about you, but for me, when I think about relationships, it's easy for me to look back on my childhood and my upbringing and immediately think of some of the most influential relationships that I've had in my life. I mean, I can remember back to the third grade all the way through high school, some of the friends that I had that were with me that whole time. And I moved around a lot, and I never really lived in one location. In fact, I went to a different elementary school every year of elementary school for different life circumstances. And yet through all of the moving, all of the transitions, I was in the same general area, and there were some friendships that weathered that storm and friendships that stuck with me the whole time. So I'm going to embarrass myself a little bit. Here's a picture of me Somewhere around middle school, I am on the top, top row, second in from the left. Uh, you can't really see it, and here's why you can't see it. Because we didn't have these cool little gadgets that took 4K pictures at, on a whim that also did phone calls for us. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have picture phones. And so this is a picture of a picture of a picture sent to me from somebody because they had the picture in a frame that they took a picture of and then sent that picture, and then that picture was eventually sent back to me. And so I got it, but you can't really see much in it. The point is that these are some of my closest friends. You see the guy all the way on the left in the top row, his name is Derek, and he was um, one of the closest friends I had my entire childhood. Derek, his parents had a nice home in our uh, town, and so I would go over to his house all the time after school. I mean, we would play basketball in his driveway after school all the time. We got into trouble, and we did good things as well. We would hang out nonstop. We'd have these sleepovers, and we started playing video games as they were uh, becoming more and more popular, and we, we played sports on, at school. We just did everything together. And I remember his family cooking meals for me and, and spending these incredible times in his home as this young kid growing up. And then um, I remember uh, right after our ninth grade year, Derek's uh, parents went through a divorce. Man, and the, the pain that that caused him and being there with him through it, not being a Christian, so having no kind of gospel lens to look at that through, but watching the pain that it caused him and watching his dad move all the way from South Florida all the way up to northern New York and to know that Derek was about to go finish high school in northern New York and I spent the summer of my ninth and 10th grade year, or 10th and 11th grade year in New York at his dad's new house, spending time with him and hanging out with him. And what I realized is that, man, that friendship... That relationship that I had with him had a tremendous impact on me developing as a person. It was a big, important friendship. I remember after that, when I went to college, I met some new friends, and we formed friendships that have had a tremendous impact on my life. And so here's the next picture to embarrass myself. We look like a Bible college boy band. Uh, <laughs> and so these were some of my closest friends. I mean, you can just see the arrogance in this picture just seeps off of it. We were fools. But... This is a picture from our basketball team, and um, these are some of my closest friends uh, that impacted my life and had a tremendous influence over who I developed into. The guy all the way on the left, his name is Nate, the one that really looks like he should be in a boy band. Uh, His name is Nate, and he was one of my closest friends. Uh, In fact, I made Nate the best man in my wedding. Looking back, I'm not sure why, because he did some things to me. Uh, But the friendship was so important and so strong. I remember one time uh, Nate had convinced me to go cliff jumping, and some of you have heard this before, and we went with an entire group of people. I'm from Florida. It's flat like Indiana. I didn't like heights. I didn't like mountains, and I didn't like the idea of jumping off of them into freezing cold water, but somehow they convinced me to go, and we're there, and we're climb up the side of this mountain, and I freeze, man. I just, there's no way I'm jumping off of this mountain because I was terrified of heights, and for 45 minutes I sat there. 
And there's actually video footage, all right? Still didn't have cell phones to film it, but they had these cameras that they brought. And someone filmed this. You'll never see the footage. But uh, <laughs> I was on the edge of this cliff, and somehow Nate got up the cliff without me seeing. And he came up behind me, and he put his foot square in the middle of my back, and he kicked me off the side of a cliff. And so I made him the best man of my wedding. I <laughs> don't know why. We had this friendship that's lasted and endured. And uh, I've got other friends. I remember after college developing friendships. I've got friendships here in this church that have influenced me and people that I love and care for, and they've poured into my life. And, and the one thing I think we'd all agree on is that our relationships impact who we are and who we become. That's why any parent, any good parent, pays close attention to the friendships that their children form. You pay close attention to that. Why? Because you know that this friendship can make or break your child's development. It may lead them to be closer to God or further from God, depending on how close this friendship becomes. And you care about that, and so you watch it. This is why when you look back on your life, you can think of some circumstances and situations that you were in where you wondered, where were my friends? The ones that claimed to be my friends, the ones that claimed to love me, they didn't show up during this time. There are other times where you think to yourself, I would have never got through fill in the blank had it not been for so-and-so and so-and-so being a real friend, having a real influence on my life. You see, relationships matter and they influence us. Proverbs 13, chapter 20 says this, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. What he's saying there is, based on what we've talked about in the sermon series, I think we would agree that our definition of wisdom is uh, coming from one source, and that is God through his word. That's where we seek wisdom. That's where we gain wisdom. And so the person who surrounds themselves with like-minded people who pursue the wisdom of God will inevitably become wise as well. The more you surround yourself with wise people, it rubs off on you. And you've noticed that in your life. You can think of people, it's like a bucket, and it's filled to the top, and it begins to flow over the sides, and it comes right into your life. And you can tell me the influence that those people had on your life. So he says the, the wise will become wise. The person who surrounds himself with wise people will become wise themselves. But the person who surrounds themselves and is a companion of fools... And by fool, we mean someone who's not seeking God. And here, friends, please hear this. Uh, foolishness doesn't always have to be loud and obnoxious. It can be subtle and slow. And it can be a slow drift away from God. And you can happen to, uh, to over and over and over again, continue to make poor choices that inevitably lead you to a larger conclusion. And the person who surrounds themselves with a fool, who's consistently moving away from God, will inevitably suffer harm. He doesn't even say become a fool themselves, which that would happen, but it actually will bring damage to your life. And so the, the thing that we gain from this is this understanding that who I surround myself with matters. We might say it this way, if I had a dining room table up here, it would be like saying, who do you invite to sit at your table? Who are you inviting to speak into your life? Who are you inviting to have influence over your development and your character? Because friends, it matters. It has a tremendous impact on who you're becoming and what your life will stand for and the difference that your life can make. This sets us up really well for the passage we're going to look at in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, if you have a Bible you, or a Bible app, you can uh, get to 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'm going to give you a little bit of context. For years, the Israelites went through uh, what we call the judges uh, who continually led them, and eventually they started begging and pleading for a king. And God knew that they didn't really want a king, but they they thought they did, and so God eventually said, I'm telling you, this isn't going to be what you want, and they got a king. 
And King Saul comes on the scene and he's big and he's strong and he's this uh, very domineering presence. And over the first few years, you begin to watch him make poor decision after poor decision. Eventually, seeking to redeem his bad, now scarred reputation, he decides to go to war with a group of people called the Philistines. And he wants to go to war with them to redeem himself, to pick up his name. And so he positions himself in a place where eventually they'll get to go to war. But here's the thing about the Philistines. They were a much bigger army. The Philistines outnumbered the Israelites tremendously. They had more chariots, more horsemen, more fighters and warriors. On top of that, they controlled all the metalworking in the land. All the metalworking, which means all weapons that had any form of metal came from the Philistines at this time, which means the Israelites, uh, we learned this in chapter 13, the Israelites, all of their weapons would have been made out of wood or stone. It tells us that only two people had any kind of a weapon with metal in it, whether a sword or a spear, and that was King Saul and his son, Jonathan. Everybody else was fighting with wood or stone. On top of that, they had no blacksmiths because they had nobody working with metal. They had no metal, so they didn't have a need for a blacksmith. But they did have agricultural tools that needed to be repaired. And so they had to go to the Philistines, who overcharged them for these repairs to their agricultural tools that were necessary for their survival. And then they would not only overcharge them, they would repair it in such a way you couldn't even use it as a weapon. You could only use it for agriculture. And so now they're economically oppressed. They're outnumbered. They're, they're undersupplied to go to, into a battle like this. And this is where we pick up this beautiful story found in chapter 14 that illustrates perfectly for us the power of a transforming relationship. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave of uh, Migron. The people who were with him were 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone, so he sneaks out of the camp. Within the passes by which Jonathan, Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other in the south in front of Geba. So it sets the stage for us. You've got this young Jonathan. His dad is the king. His dad has continually made poor choice after poor choice to the point where Jonathan wants to do something but doesn't trust telling his dad because his dad continually is looking out for himself. As a matter of fact, Jonathan had already engaged in a smaller battle and won that battle, and Saul claimed it for himself. And so now Jonathan is wanting to go and do something for the Lord, and he decides to take his armor bearer. He trusts his armor bearer. Here's why. An armor bearer was not simply somebody who carried your armor, though they did do that. An armor bearer was somebody who went to war with you, someone who battled with you. There was this, uh, this transforming relationship that took place between these two. It's much like if you were to ask anybody who's been in any kind of combat with another person. When they go into that combat, there's a bond that's formed that can't be mimicked or, re mimicked or reproduced anywhere else. They call it a band of brothers. There's this formation that takes place where I am with you to the end. Like We are so close, and this friendship is so intimate and close that I trust you. And so Jonathan comes to this friend with trust. Now, he presents to him a plan that doesn't make a lot of sense from a military standpoint. 
He wants to look between him and between the goal that he's got. There's this really rough, difficult terrain. It's actually in Hebrew translated tooth of the rock. And so you got to picture all of this mountainous terrain and these two really sharp edges come out. And you cannot get where you want to go without going over them. In fact, the one that's translated bozes is literally translated slippery. Meaning when you went up, you slipped down. Like if you could even get up, it was a very difficult climb. And the other one, Sena, is translated thorny because of the blackberry bushes that were prominent on that mountain. And so you got down one and climbed through all these thorn bushes to get over the next. And then if you happened to survive the climbing, you would get up to the top of the hill where you were outnumbered and under-resourced uh, to engage in a battle with a military that was far bigger and more powerful than yours. So he goes to his armor bearer and he says, hey, what do you think? <laughs> good idea, good plan. You see, Jonathan had a, 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 something on his heart. He had a conviction on his heart that this is what God was calling him to do. And he didn't trust his dad. He didn't trust anybody. He trusted the armor bearer. So he goes to the armor bearer. Verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So right away, he's presenting this plan, and the armor bearer would have picked up on this, he, who he called the Philistines the first time, he now calls the uncircumcised. And so he says, these uncircumcised, and what Jonathan's doing here is he's recognizing the bigger picture. He is not caught in the trees of simply saying this is one individual battle. He is panning out to see the big picture of what's going on here, and he says this isn't just a physical battle, this is a spiritual battle. Because when they talked about those who are uncircumcised, they were specifically pointing out people that weren't just opposed to but were in direct opposition of God and his people. And the Philistines were not for God at all, and they were actually adamantly against God. And so now you have Jonathan recognizing that and telling his armor bearer, hey, this is bigger than a physical battle. There's a spiritual war that's going on here. And now his armor bearer begins to see the motives behind this decision, motives that maybe if he thought he was more like his dad, he would have questioned. But that transforming relationship, that closeness, was beginning to wear off on the armor bearer, and he began to see this is a good man with good intentions and good character. And so then Jonathan says, hey, perhaps God, or, or maybe the Lord will work in our favor. That's not doubting God. That's not him saying, well, I don't know if God will actually do this, but it kind of sounds like it'll be fun. Let's go do it. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, God has called me to be faithful. I think he's calling us to do this. And if we succeed or don't succeed, that's up to him. I'm going to trust him with the results of this, but I do feel called to go, and I'm sharing this dream with you because I trust you and I care about you, and I know that we're, we're, we're friends who both love the Lord, and so if we can go forward and pursue what God wants, he can deliver because he's bigger. He says he, nothing stops God from doing what God wants, and so this is really a, a way for Jonathan to tell the armor bearer, hey, I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to recognize his sovereignty, his control, his power, and honestly give him the glory for whatever takes place after this battle. And so now, all of this begins to show the armor bearer the heart and the motive behind Jonathan's request, Jonathan's dream, Jonathan's plans. In fact, the armor bearer is so convicted by the heart of his friend that he responds in verse 7. And the armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. And it's actually, a better translation would be, do everything that your heart desires. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. See, the armor bearer was able to make a decision to follow Jonathan based on his experience with Jonathan, based on his understanding of Jonathan's heart, based on his 
understanding of Jonathan's intentions. And here's what I've learned in my life, and maybe you've learned a similar lesson. The relationships that are closest to me are the ones that I can understand the intentions of. The people that are the closest to me, the people that I allow to sit at my table, the people that I allow to speak truth into my life and influence me are the people whose motives I come to understand is pure. The motives that I understand is God-honoring. And this armor-bearer understood the intentions of Jonathan based on all of the talking that they've been doing. And so let me ask you a very difficult question, an honest question, though. Do your friends, do the relationships that you have invited to sit at your table, do they consistently display godly character and affirm in you that you should follow God? Let me word it this way. Do the people that you welcome into your life to be the closest to you, to let into your circle, do they get you closer to God, further from God, or can you not tell? They're just there. They've always been my friends. Or are the people that are closest to you actually helping you take steps closer to the God that you serve and want to follow? Many of us, many of us would probably benefit from doing an inventory of the people we've allowed to sit at our table. That's hard. That's not easy, and it's, but it's worth it. It's worth looking at that rough terrain and saying, I think God's calling me this way, and I need people around me to either affirm that or lead me a different direction, but I need to know that their motives are God-honoring. Jonathan continues, verse 8. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we're going to stand still in our place, and we're not going to go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we're going to go up to them, for, God, for the Lord God has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. And so now what we learn about Jonathan is that he felt like the Lord was calling him, but he wanted to make sure that he wasn't trusting his own gut and his own understanding. And so he pursues a sign. The sign was not to say, God, I think you got this one wrong. The sign was to say, I want to make sure when I'm making major life decisions that I'm not trusting my own instinct and my own gut. That when I make these decisions, I'm actually making sure that I'm honoring God. And so, Lord, make this clear to us. Please make this clear to us. Again, the armor bearer is beginning to see. He's beginning to see the heart. And so he says, if we show ourselves to them at the bottom of this, these two giant uh, pieces of stone coming up out of the ground, and they see how difficult it is, and they say, hey, we're going to come to you, then that'll be our sign that this is not of God. But if they say, come on up to us, then God is telling us and he's affirming for us, this is the direction that we should go. So both of them, verse 11 showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming up out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing or two. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. I love that scene. I mean, this is the stuff that makes movies awesome. Like they show themselves to him and they show up and up on that hill where they're going to have to climb to engage in this battle, the Philistines start to mock them and make fun of them. Say, oh, look at the Israelites coming up out of the holes. Look at what they're doing. That's, that's cute. That's awesome. Why don't you come up here and we'll teach you about warfare. We've got all the metal. We've got all the weapons. We far outnumber you. We're far more prepared than you are. So come on up here. Let's battle. Let's do this. And then in a moment which I don't think they could hear, it's like Jonathan looks over at the armor bearer and he's like, well, we win, let's do this. And they begin this incredible climb up this hill. Now, here's what I want you to see, that Jonathan, this story, Jonathan, this took place and this was awesome and that friendship was incredible, but Jonathan points to a better Jonathan, Jesus. 
In the same way that Jonathan descended into the holes of this space and ascended and climbed up to victory, it's the same thing that Jesus did when he went down into a grave and died for us and ascended from the grave, resurrected to save us the same way that Jonathan would ultimately save the Israelite people. You see, Jonathan, this is an incredible story about transforming relationships, but the hero of this story, it's really God. And we're going to see that here in a moment. Verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, it, within as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. That's half an acre of land. Just half an acre, 20 of them, two of Jonathan and his armor bearer. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all of the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And so they climb up this first hill, and they climb up this second one, and they arrive at the top of this cliff, which they've given up military positioning. And it just doesn't make sense that you would give up your positioning and climb up to engage in a battle, but that's what they're going to do. And they might have felt a little bit of fear, but the exhilaration for pursuing the call of God was overpowering to them. And they made this climb, and they get up there, and they engage in this half-acre fight, and just a half-acre of land. Now, many people, some scholars think, that the um, Philistines were looking down at the two of them and they made fun of them and thought they'll never make this climb. And they kind of ignored it and walked away. Others think that, no, they probably watched them and they were so paralyzed with surprise that two men could even make the climb that they stood in their place until they came up. And what Jonathan is doing is he's noticing if they're welcoming us to make that climb, they're overconfident. They're getting cocky. They're overconfident. We're going to make the climb. And they arrived on the scene and they engaged in the battle. They engaged in the fight and they won. But here's what I notice about this. Jonathan didn't just have a calling on his life and kind of think about it and maybe do it. He followed through. God called him to do something and God affirmed for him that he wanted him to do it. And then he actually went through with it. He didn't climb up the first hill and think, man, this was rough. And I don't know that I'm going to have the energy to keep going. Let's turn back. He didn't get over the second cliff and then up onto the scene and realize there's 20 of them, two of us didn't know that, let's bail. No, he got to the top and he followed through with what God called him to do because God had showed himself faithful time and time and time again. And when he won the battle, God reminded him who gets the glory because the last time I checked, Jonathan and an armor bearer couldn't produce an earthquake. They engage in this battle and they win and it says the earth starts to shake and that's what creates the panic and the Philistines flee and they run out of fear. Why? Because God showed up. Why? Because God took a little bit of their faithfulness and multiplied it, which is exactly what God always does with us. In our obedience, when we're faithful to obey him, he takes that little bit of faithfulness and that little bit of obedience and he multiplies it exponentially and he does things that are so big only he can get the credit and that's exactly what he did right here. That's exactly what he did right here. Jonathan understood that the calling placed on his life was not about his success. It was about his faithfulness. And the same thing is true in your life. The call that God puts on your life, what he's asked you to do, it's not about you being successful. God handles that. It's about you being faithful to the call and surrounding yourself at your table, welcoming in the voices into your life that will transform your heart to pursue that call and be faithful to it. Every time in my life where I pursue success and try to manipulate the results, I find myself not being faithful. But each time I just say, I'm going to be faithful, Lord. I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. He takes care of the results and the success. And so this is a challenge. 
It's a challenge for all of us. I, I got to sit with somebody who's in one of our discipleship groups. And so we, uh, we really believe in our discipleship groups here at New Hope. And we believe that that's where transforming relationships really take place in these groups that we have during the week. And so they meet together and they study the word and then each person commits to actually living out God's word that week. So when they come back, they hear a testimony of God's faithfulness and how he multiplies their faithfulness. Well, here, uh, this past week, I got to sit with somebody who was in one of our groups and this person said that in the group, they had studied a passage over finances and they made this commitment to be financially generous. That's, hey, I'm going to be generous. And so didn't know how that was going to look, didn't know what it, what it looked like, but they were getting ready to go on a road trip with their family um, to Philadelphia. And so somewhere, they load up and they're driving through the night and somewhere between here and Philadelphia, in the middle of the night, they see a flashlight waving on the side of the road. And so again, this is what takes place when we are committed to obeying the Lord it changes the way you see things. Your lens, the, the way you look at the world changes because now you're thinking, where is God going to show up? Where does God want me to obey? Where does God want me to be faithful? So they see this flashlight and they decide they're going to pull over, a risky thing. They pull over. They say, hey, what's going on? The guy says, I'm having car trouble. You know, things aren't working. Man, the car broke down. He said, hey, I'm going to go up to the next exit. They're on a turnpike. So they're going to go up the next exit to a service station and see what they can do to help. So they pull up to the service station and they get a can of gas and a hot chocolate and they circle back around and they're coming down the other side of the turnpike and they notice that a tow truck had showed up on the scene. Maybe the service station had called and, and so they stop in the middle of the turnpike and they wave the guy over and say, hey, uh, give this guy that hot chocolate and tell him God loves him, which I'm thinking probably rocked the world of the tow truck driver. Like I've been out here a lot towing cars. No one's ever stopped on the other side and told me to give someone hot chocolate and tell him that God loved him. And so then they decided, we're going to follow the tow truck and see what happens. And so they follow the tow truck to the service station. And he checks with his wife, and, and the kids are good. And so he goes into the service station to check on the guy. And he finds that the guy that had the car trouble and the tow truck driver, there's some tension between them. They're getting frustrated with each other. And he walks up to check out what's going on, and he finds out that the guy who had the car trouble couldn't afford to pay for the tow truck. So then it hits him. This is why. God wanted me to be faithful, to give generously. And so he pays the bill and takes care of that. And before he has a moment to say, which he thought, I need to tell him about Jesus and tell him about God, the guy who he helped says, thank you. Can I tell you my testimony? And he's like, wait, I was supposed to do that to you. Like, <laughs> all right. And so they sit down and they begin to talk about Jesus. And the guy was really down and he said, I don't know why I'm having car trouble and all this stuff. And he said, well, maybe it's because I made this commitment and God wanted us to encounter each other so I could encourage you with the love of Jesus. You see, this is what God does. He puts a vision in your heart. The terrain's not always easy. It's not, it's not always fun, even. It can be difficult, but he takes our little bit of faithfulness and he multiplies it to impact other people's lives. And we surround ourselves with people who transform our relationship to stay on that mission and stay focused. We partner with God to save lives. And so this last week I was reading about a, a wedding that took place in Australia. And this bridal party, they were at the end of a pier at the ocean, right? Rough life, I know, and in Australia. This beautiful scenery behind them. And the bridal party's taking pictures of their wedding day before going to their reception. True story. And the groom looks over the pier and he sees that someone's boat had capsized and they were drowning. And so he jumps off the pier and swims to them in his tux. Ladies, you're like, oh, oh. But he, he jumps off and he swims and he grabs this person and he's swimming to shore with them. 
The wife happened to be a nurse. The, soon, the new wife happened to be a nurse in her wedding gown, runs down halfway down the pier and jumps off the side of the pier herself in her wedding dress where she could grab and help her husband, her new husband, get this person to the shore where she performed CPR until the medics arrived and kept the person alive. Then the couple, soaking wet and dirty, had to go to their reception and greet all their guests with big smiles on their face because they just partnered together to save a life. It's a beautiful picture of the church and why we pursue transforming relationships. The Bible calls the church the bride and God's the groom. And we partner with him in the saving of lives. And we're going to arrive to the great banquet day of the Lord, our reception one day. And we're going to be wet and dirty with big smiles on our face because together we lived his mission to save people. Friends, I'm going to close with this question for you. How are the relationships in your life transforming you into who you need to be in order to do what God needs you to do? How are the relationships that you've invited to sit at your table, how are they influencing you into becoming the person God needs you to be in order to partner with you to do what he needs you to do? We would all benefit from doing an inventory of our tables to see who we're allowing to sit around that table and speak into our lives. Because God's going to put a mission on your heart and the terrain's going to look rough. And it's going to be difficult and it's going to be hard and you're going to need somebody to say, hey, I'm with you, heart and soul. Let's go. And God will do exponentially more than you could ever think or imagine with your faithfulness. God has been doing that in the life of our student minister, Jed, and his wife, Adrian. Uh, I've met Jed 15 plus years ago in Bible college, and that kid that you saw in the picture was not the nicest kid. And Jed was an RA, and I made him work for it, all right? Uh, I had, we had a rough start to the friendship there. And so I left that Bible college, and that's how our friendship had left when he was uh, at Johnson with me. And I met his cousin, and I fell in love with her because she's awesome. And I don't think Jed liked that because all he had was the recollection of who I was, not who I had become. And so then we got engaged and ultimately got married. And I remember on our wedding day, things had just changed between Jed and I. And what started there was a friendship. Yes, I married into his family. Yes, we became family. And those of you that didn't know, Jed, our student minister, we are related. And that friendship formed and became really strong. And he's become like a brother to me. I'm going to invite Jed and Adrian to make their way up to the stage. About a month ago, Jed came to me and said, hey, I've got something on my heart. You see, uh, something to know about Jed is that his dad had planted a church in downtown Indianapolis. And I get a little choked up because his dad was one of my favorite people. So a month ago, Jed, or years ago, his dad planted this church in downtown Indianapolis. And, and so Jed grew up here in Indy. He's always had a heart for this city. It's always been his heart. And then he moved away to Kansas City, spent a few years in the promised land in Florida, and then uh, <laughs> made his way back to Indianapolis two years ago to join our staff and be our student minister. And it's been great because we've got this tight connection, this tight friendship. But a month ago, he came to me and said that there was a church that had requested to talk to him about planting a church in downtown Indianapolis. 
in one of the poorest parts of our city with the biggest needs. And Jed's heart started to tell him that this might be where the Lord was leading he and his wife. And so together, they pursued God's wisdom. And over and over and over again, God's affirmed that call. And so Jed has accepted a position on staff at Mount Pleasant Christian Church. And later on this year, he and Adrian will plant the church in downtown Indianapolis, seeking to love and care for people that are hard to love and care for. And they see the goal, and the terrain's going to be rough. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be easy to get there. But we get to be the armor bearer. We get to come alongside and say, we're with you heart and soul. Go. We get to do that in a couple of ways. With With prayers, and that's what I cannot impose on you enough. Pray, pray, pray for them. This will not be an easy work, and they're following the lead of God with their family, so please pray for them. And then we want to support them with people. Mount Pleasant's coming alongside and doing this work, but we just want to say if there's anybody in our church that feels like your heart might be calling you to go downtown and minister with them, we want to tell you that you can go with our blessing because we believe in the Big C Church. The church is bigger than New Hope. And so in a few months from now, as the work begins to solidify, we're going to bring Jed back and allow him to tell you what's going on with this incredible work downtown. And between now and then, his last Sunday with us will be next Sunday, February 19th. He begins his work there on the 20th. And today after church and next, next week in particular, I encourage you to come and talk to him, to grab him in the hallway and pray, to encourage him, to remind him that his church that loves both of them, we're ready to say, we're with you heart and soul. We believe in what you're doing. This is not an ending. This is ascending. And for that, we're grateful. Friends, I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to ask you to pray for them as well, but I'd, I'd like to pray for you too. And God might be putting a big dream on your heart, and the terrain looks rough, and you need to surround yourself with people who will give you godly counsel and wisdom that inevitably will come alongside you and say, because this is of God, I'm with you heart and soul. Let's go. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the friendship. Thank you for your providence, how you've worked. It's incredible to see 15 years ago and to think where we're standing right now on this stage. It's incredible how you work and how you move and how you formulate these transforming relationships. Relationships that are transforming are only possible because of you. And you've done a great work in my life by giving me the friendship of Jed and Adrian. I love them deeply. And I care about them deeply. And I'm glad they're not going too far, but boy, am I grateful for the faithfulness they're displaying and making this tough decision. I'm grateful for a church that wants to support and love and care for them all along the way. God, I pray for the city of Indianapolis that that you would be preparing the hearts of the people that he's coming to minister to to share the gospel with. Prepare them. I pray for Mount Pleasant Christian Church that you would give them all of the energy and all of the resources and everything they need to make this a great and fruitful work. And at the end of the day, you would take the faithfulness, Jed and Adrian, and take the faithfulness of that church and ours, and you would multiply it exponentially so the only one that would receive glory would be you. God, we love you and we thank you for your faithfulness. As we begin to live on mission individually and corporately as a church, and the terrain looks difficult, may we pursue transforming relationships so we can say to one another, I'm with you heart and soul. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.